Oh, a wise guy, eh? He sure is. He's Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball, and he joins us next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 8th. Show number seven of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball Season, our Tuesday Tout Edition. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and it's always a pleasure to have Gene McCaffrey on the show. I first met Gene several years ago at First Pitch Arizona. I was the new guy, wandering through the hotel bar, didn't know anyone, when I hear this deep voice booming out and saying, looking for some place to sit? Come join us. And so I did. And Gene was as genial as could be and a terrific articulate conversationalist as well about fantasy baseball and all kinds of other topics. Over the years at Baseball HQ Radio, listeners have found out about Gene McCaffrey's wide range of thinking about fantasy baseball and player projection. And there's more of that kind of stuff in this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk about true first-rounders, about daily fantasy strategy, about pitchers who pitch up in the zone, and the streakiness of high-strikeout, high-flyball hitters. We'll have Gene's sleepers and bleepers and a lot more. So what do you say? When the wise guy of fantasy baseball is in the house, you better believe we gotta talk some baseball. Gene McCaffrey, welcome to the show. It isn't uh, Baseball HQ Radio season until the wise guy's been on. It's great to be back, Patrick. First, the annual, Gene, it's so detailed and so comprehensive, and there's so much witty and intelligent writing in it. I wonder how long does it take you from start to finish to get the annual put together and produced? Well, basically, it takes me four months, about three to four hours a night. Uh, I start in uh, October, November, December, and January. So, yeah, four months, three to four hours a night. And um, it's a lot of work. It's a labor of love, so it makes it nice and easy. I love it. It must be a huge help to you in, in your fantasy baseball draft planning, and I imagine through the year for DFS planning because you've done so much research on every player in baseball pretty much. It gives you the framework to start from, and of course, you know, in a way I kind of re- regret actually publishing it because it sort of freezes the knowledge right then and there, and of course, as we know, knowledge is not a, um, a static commodity, and it, you know, we, continue to, we continually learn things and you know, some things are no longer true, other things are more true, and um, so yeah, in a way, I kind of resent or don't like freezing it like that, because it's uh, an ongoing process, as they say. A couple of years ago, I asked you why you had stopped publishing or suspended publishing for a year, and you said you were tired of giving away all your plans and strategies to the guys you were playing against. It was kind of hard going to Vegas, and you know, all these really good players sitting down at the table, and they all knew exactly what I was thinking, and I had no idea what they were thinking, and they're just as good, you know, if not better players than I am. And so I thought if I did that, um, maybe it would work, but it really didn't. And at the same time, Gene, you've also uh, really uh, upgraded the Wise Guy Baseball website. Talk about some of the changes you made there and, uh, and what you're trying to accomplish with WiseGuyBaseball.com. Well, the new website, as you said, wiseguybaseball.com, is going to be um, primarily devoted to DFS once the season starts. Right now, I've got Wise Guy Baseball 2016 posted. I've got my draft rankings posted. I've got tweaks to the player conference, uh, comments posted. And we'll continue to do that to help people with their drafts up until the season starts. Once the season starts, though, it's full steam DFS. And um, I've got a, an algorithm that I've been working on that is really good. And not only that, but I'm going to be tweaking it and giving out picks every single day. And I'm hoping that it's going to be, I know it's going to be really good. Um, I'm hoping it's going to be the best. Well, you've told me in the past that uh, you really enjoy DFS, and in fact, uh, you think that uh, it might become your primary focus, but you used to really like the challenge-type games as the best form, and now you're saying uh, they're probably passe, largely because of DFS. Uh, The daily games are a far better version, you say, in the uh, Wise Guy Baseball Annual, and you're going to make daily fantasy your primary focus this year, as you said. What is it about DFS, you think, that that puts it uh, at the top of the heap? Well, um, first of all, I made it my primary focus last year, too, so it's not, it's not a new thing. Um, but what I always liked about challenge games was that you could react to the, 
the season's reality um, as it happens to a certain extent. And with DFS, you can do that a lot more and a lot better. And that's why I think that so far it's the best test of knowledge that's been devised as, as far as fantasy baseball is concerned. I still love my drafts, but, you know, what a draft is or an auction is, it's a snapshot of the best you could do at that time. And you know, the information that you're, that you're acting on becomes dated rather quickly just from injuries and, and the changing of the guard. There's a certain amount of changing of the guard every year in baseball, and it's nice to be able to react to that rather than to, rather than to be frozen in, into a static sort of auction or draft. You had a great idea in the Wise Guy Baseball in your essay on this whole subject, and it was, uh, I think, it, I don't know whether it was intended this way, but it seemed like a bit of a response to the critique of DFS that it's too uh, luck-oriented and so forth. This is also kind of the source of a lot of the wrangling in the legal arena that's going on. But you said that you thought it would be a good idea to have maybe two-day games or three-day games and weekly games. And uh, do you think that's ever likely to happen? Because it seems like a really good idea and a logical extension really of DFS. Yeah, I think it will happen. Um, you know, you already see it in, for instance, any golf tournament that they have is a four-day contest. So it's not like the companies can't do it. Um, they're not set up for it. I love the idea. I mean, it gives you um, it gives a lot of options. It gives you a little sample size insurance on your um, in that particular game. But, you know, uh, let me address the, the issue of sample size and luck. And because, yes, it's certainly true that anything can happen on any given day. But if you're playing DFS seriously, by the end of the season, you, you have an enormous sample size of, yeah, anything can happen on any day, but everything that happens all year to all of your players is as big a sample size as you can get. And that's why I think it's the truest test. You say in the uh, Wise Guy Baseball Annual that the fact that DFS plays without closers is, and I'm quoting here, a blessing. Why do you say that? Because it's the most random element in baseball. I mean, getting saves has very little to do with skill. I mean, just let's look at Brad Boxberger last year. He had a terrible year. He had 41 saves. Um, you know, I like the games to be some sort of a reflection of what we know about baseball, not who happens to be thrown into the ninth inning with a three-run lead. I don't think it really tells you anything about how good somebody is. and um, So it's less skill-based, more luck-based, and I'm against that every time. And finally, without getting uh, too involved in the debate, how concerned are you that daily fantasy baseball will be banned or restricted or controlled by governments at various levels? I fear it. Um, I mean, there's ignorance, there's sanctimony, and there's greed lined up against us, uh, it's pretty dangerous. Um, I think we'll be lucky to get out of it with something resembling what we have now. I just hope that we do, that common sense prevails, but I fear that it won't. Moving on to uh, the NFBC and the straight drafts and, and the sort of season-long formats that most of our listeners are probably familiar with, uh, you said in the annual, where you want to draft depends on the players in that particular year, particularly when it comes to true first-rounders. What does true first-rounders mean, and who are they in this uh, 2016 season? Well, um, a true first-rounder is a guy who you can bank on to give you at least four top categories. Um, sometimes five, but at least four. Um, relatively safe as far as injuries are concerned. Um, as far as this year is concerned, I think there are more of them this year than there have been since I started counting because I get a good 12, and, and the public disagrees with me because the public has Rizzo and Stanton as true first-rounders, and while I certainly agree that their talent is at that level, I just don't think that they're going to stay healthy enough for for various reasons, but... The reason I like to, to if, if there were 12, normally I would want to pick 12th because I'm guaranteed to get a true first-rounder, and then I get the earlier pick coming back. Um, I've never experienced a draft where I had as many. I think last year I only had five true first-rounders, so in that year I wanted to pick fifth if I can't pick first or second, which I generally prefer. And I also don't mind 14th or 15th because I like, those, I like making picks in pairs. I think it... Uh, the draft turns out to be a combination of accepting the gifts and making what's called reaches, but really aren't reaches if you're getting the best available stats. 
and I like that. It, it helps with me. It helps me structure my team better. I think. Uh, one of the debates that I've been having with uh, various experts since uh, Baseball HQ Radio resumed this season is the idea of uh, Carlos Correa and Chris Bryant in particular as first-rounders. And uh, the uh, argument in favor, of course, is clearly there's a lot of talent there in both instances. The argument against them being first-rounders, of course, is the risk brought on by the lack of experience. So in your list of true first-rounders, do Correa and Bryant make the grade? Uh, Correa does, Bryant does not. Um, to me, they are definitely not the same player. Uh, I don't think that... Um, I think Carlos Correa is safe. I, mean, I know he doesn't have much of a track record, but this is where subjectivity comes into it. I mean, I've seen this guy hit, and I've seen him fool him in that bat, but he's throwing the same pitch the second time in the at-bat, and he hits it hard. I mean, once I see that, I say, wow, this is a special talent. This is a guy who's got a really good chance to be in the Hall of Fame. And I know that that's, you know, it sounds like an, an outlandish statement, but it really isn't. I mean, based on the track record of players who play regularly in the majors that young, chance of being in the Hall of Fame. And I would say he's got a greater than 50% chance subjectively. Um, there's nothing that he did in the majors that's inconsistent with that. And so I think that, yes, he's got a good chance to be the first pick next year. And after all, isn't that what we're kind of playing for? Um, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if he had a 35-25 season and hit 300. And that's a guy that's going to be in contention for the first pick next year. So, yeah, I think he's safe. And Bryant is not safe because? He strikes out too much. Um, I don't think he can sustain, at the level of strikeouts that he has, he can't sustain a high batting average. And while, yes, I think he's automatic to hit 30 home runs, he'll steal a few bases, his production will be good. I don't think that's quite a first-rounder, at least not yet. Do these uh, prescriptions that you have apply to pitching as well? Well, as far as being young and in the major leagues, no, because uh, pitchers are more erratic and it's more easy. You know, if he, Once he has Tommy John or labrum problems, then it's a whole different kettle of fish. Um, but I do think that there are many pitchers who, in terms of what they're going to deliver by the categories, are true first-rounders. But there's no reason to take him in the first round because you don't have to. You can get him in the second and third round. So, But I do advocate getting them, yes. Just not usually, unless you want Kershaw or Scherzer, you don't have to take him in the first round. You mentioned Anthony Rizzo last year not being a member of the true first-round club. How about this year? Well, as I say, his talent, definitely, no question about it. And I was listening to, your, um, to last week's podcast when you were talking about hit by pitcher uh, batters who get hit by pitches a lot and how they they actually are very good hitters and I thought wow that's kind of interesting and I hadn't thought of it in those terms but it's true so kudos to you on that but I was Thank saying you. to myself as I was listening but Patrick when you get hit by pitches you break bones <laughs> and I don't know what the ratio is of broken bones to hit by pitches but I gotta figure that if you get hit by 20 pitches a bone is gonna break once and that's the only reason that I don't have Rizzo there, uh, because he got hit 30 times last year. Um, it's a skill, yes. You know, I mean, he leans into the pitch. I'm sure he's trained his body to do, you know, to react to it and to get hit in the right place with the meat, not the bone. But, eh, you know, life's not that simple. And, you know, you get hit in the head and you're out for the year. That's true. I, I don't know that guys who get hit by pitch a lot, you mentioned it's a skill. I believe it's a skill at the, at the higher levels. When you get down into the guys who are hit three or four times a year, I think that's just crowding the plate, uh, being unlucky, you know, the ball just uh, riding in on you and you don't expect it, that kind of thing. But I think these high uh, hit-by-pitch guys like Shinsu Chu and Rizzo and a few others, I think they're doing it on purpose. I think they know what they're doing. And I actually think the injury risk from hit-by-pitch is less than it is for most other players because these guys are doing it on purpose by design and they know what the design is. I, I think that they're, as you said, they're turning their back into it. They're getting hit on the on the uh, back muscles or you know somewhere in the buttocks or someplace like that. It's not that likely to cause a, a serious injury, unlike a guy who doesn't get hit a lot and takes one off the uh, wrist or the hand. Yeah, I, I mean, that's very possible. Uh, uh, let's, let's watch and see how that plays out. Um, I will throw Starling Marte at you. Um, now, he's a guy who has missed time because he's been hit by pitches a couple of times. I think three is him, but certainly two. Um, 
miss significant time because of that. Um, so, yeah, let's watch it and see how it plays out. Because, you know, I mean, it's not a major thing, but it's definitely something that the listeners um, may benefit from knowing. Let's see how it plays out. It will be interesting. And now that I've thought of it, I'm going to certainly pay a lot more attention to injuries resulting. That's the big thing for me. But also, does it uh, tend to correlate year in, year out, those kind of things? Some of the uh, some of the things I found in a very cursory sort of research that I did in the first place show that, you know, as a general rule, guys who get hit by pitch a lot tend to have pretty good fantasy results. And I don't know that it's sort of... Um, correlative in the way that you can say, you know, 30 hit by pitches means a batting average of 290 or an OBP of, you know, 375 or whatever in the same way that we can kind of make equations to, to consider other metrics. But I think there's something there. Uh, before we leave this idea, you said in the, in the annual, the whole discussion of first rounds is way overblown anyway. And I'm curious what you mean by that, because, you know, most experts say you can lose the draft in the first round. Yeah, well, um, we talk about the first round because we can, because we have a pretty good idea of who's going to be available and who we want to take and may not, might not want to take. But the whole idea of the first round is not to make a disastrous mistake, um, to try to get the guy who's going to give you, you know, like the $42 player who actually earns $42. Um, it's not that important. They're all great players. Um, what we should be talking about are the or who should drop down three rounds from last year, who should be up three rounds from last year. But it's harder to talk about because once the first round is over, we have a much more vague idea of who's going to be available in the second, more vague still in the third, and like that. Um, so that's why people talk about it. And uh, and I think that, you know, you're going to get a great player in the first round unless you do something really stupid or you get really unlucky. So, you know, let's move on. I think uh, you're re- really on to something when you say that. We've been talking about this in past shows here at Baseball HQ Radio, and this raises the whole topic of ADPs and how to use them or if to use them. And I think what you say is quite accurate in that we can really look at the ADPs with some interest in the first round or maybe two because we know who the players are, and it's just a question of how are they being ordered. And that's ignoring the fact that ADPs may influence future leagues, which influences the ADPs, which you know, and they start to solidify around the conventional wisdom. But I think once you get down into the you know fourth, fifth, sixth rounds, and especially down into the 14th, 15th, 19th, 20th, so much of the decision-making in a draft, or an auction for that matter, is driven by the particular dynamics of the draft situation at that time. And you might think, boy, that guy really reached for that second baseman uh, compared to the ADPs. And, and what you don't know is that in that particular instance, that was the last second baseman. He really needed a second baseman. He didn't want to gamble on having to take Johnny Giovatella you know, later on in the draft. He wanted to make sure he solidified that position at that time. Yeah, it looks like a reach compared to what everybody else has been doing, but not everybody else is participating in the same draft under the same circumstances at the same time. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, every draft is different. And um, ADPs, uh, I mean, I've been confounded by um, people reaching every single year um, in ADPs thinking I could get this guy here or that guy there. You know, I I don't want to say ignore them, but it's your team. Um, Do it right for your team. Forget if you think that this guy is going to put up the best stats at that time in the draft, take him. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks about him. That's why we play. Take him. Have confidence in your own judgment. And um, as long as you know the players well, I think that that's, that's the best way to get the best team. Now, the argument against it, and I'll be the devil's advocate here, is if, if you have a guy that you think is the very best player available in the 14th round, but you know from the ADPs that he's been taken more or less in the 19th round, maybe you can afford to hold off an extra round and get another player being reasonably comfortable with the idea that that player that you really do want is going to make it through another couple of rounds. Yeah, I mean, factor it in, but don't be a slave to it. And when you do that, don't be surprised if the guy's gone the next time you pick.
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with the Wise Guy, Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball and WiseGuyBaseball.com. And Gene, uh, one of the things you write about very entertainingly in the annual, and uh, anytime anybody has a chance to talk with you, the subject inevitably turns to various theories about the game. And uh, one of the ones I'd like to start with is this idea that among experts that there's going to be a shortage of stolen bases this season. Practically every site you look at, practically every expert you hear says, make sure you target your stolen bases because they're in desperately short supply. And I know you said somewhere on social media recently that even though this idea is commonly stated, the conventional wisdom, you think it's overstated. Why is that? Not only do I think it's overstated, I think it's dead wrong. Yeah, stolen bases are down, but that's good. It's not bad. It doesn't, it's not cause for panic. It's cause for mild celebration. When, when say, 10 guys are stealing 35 or more bases, and three guys are stealing over 60. It causes these great peaks in stolen bases where certain teams dominate the category, and you can never catch them. Now, sure, only seven guys stole 30 or more bases, but another 23 stole 20 to 29. Another 59 stole between 10 and 19. So there are plenty of stolen bases out there, and the way it is now, it makes it easier to get a respectable or a little better than respectable total in the category, which is all you really want anyway. I mean, the pursuit of stolen bases, it is one category, and it's very minor help and runs scored. It enables you to pursue power and batting average, which are going to help you more in the production cats. And, and so you get a respectable total by just paying attention without need, you don't need any Billy Hamiltons or anything like that. You can always get stolen bases in the middle and late rounds, that are attached to batting average from a leadoff hitter or a few home runs here and there. I think it's a great situation, and we should be happy about it. Yeah, I like the idea that uh, if you get a good player who steals 20 rather than a specialist who steals 50, your chances of uh, picking up a little bit of extra points in in some of those other categories, particularly runs scored if you get a leadoff hitter uh, who may not be a 60 stolen base guy, but if he's a 18 stolen base guy scoring 90 runs, you're probably going to be better off in the long run, and you're probably going to benefit in batting average as well, as Billy Hamilton has certainly demonstrated. Yeah, and the other thing is, is that when a player, especially a young player, has demonstrated ability in more than one category, um, the chances that he'll develop that category, whether it's home runs or stolen bases, and get you, you know, 10 extra in that year are greatly increased. And he could also get better in both categories in addition to batting average. So I think that, you know, when we're talking about gambles, you know, and every player is a gamble to a certain extent, that these are the kind of guys that you want to gamble on, where they can go where they can help you in more than one way and probably will help you in at least one way. In the Wise Guy Baseball Annual, Gene, you said, and I quote, I have this theory which I know is right, but I can't prove it. And that's when I started giggling because I know exactly what you mean. Or rather, you said, I can show you dozens of examples but can't frame a proper study of the matter. And the theory is that high strikeout fly ball hitters as long as they're of a certain quality, are also massively prone to streaks and slumps. Why do you say that, and what do you think it means as far as trying to slot them into a fantasy strategy? First of all, I'd like to ask the help of the listeners here. There's a lot of smart guys listening to this. Please help me frame this study, because I know it's true. I've been watching it for more than a decade, and example after example keeps coming up. That that's what these guys do. They have, you know, a streak. When I say a streak, I mean at least six weeks, and it can last as as long as almost two years. And then they'll have a sort of compensating slump. Now it's not clockwork. It's not, and that's what makes it so hard to measure, because you can see that they're happening, but you don't know how long it's going to last. Um, and that's what makes it so difficult to study. But guys like. You know, uh, Nelson Cruz, Chris Davis, these are the kings of, the, of this. Um, on down to Trumbo and Jay Bruce and guys like this, they, they hit their home runs in, you know, Nelson Cruz last year had two massive streaks in which he hit, I think, you know, something like 38 home runs. And then he did almost nothing in the two months that he wasn't, when he wasn't streaking. Chris Davis, um, you know, who last year went, his ADP was 64. This year his ADP is in the 20s. Um, he's really 
smack dab in the middle of that. But he's coming off one of his best, one of his better seasons, and what they call recency bias, or what I've always called front running, um, has him up in the twenties where he doesn't belong. Neither did he belong at sixty-four. He belongs smack dab in the middle. But this year, I would bet against him having one of his better years because he's got to have the compensating streak. You can't sustain a high batting average when you strike out that much and you hit that many fly balls. So when you hit 260, 270, there's going to be a compensating time when you're hitting 220 for at least six weeks and sometimes as long as a whole year. I mean, Chris Davis has hit under 200 twice, and he's one of the best hitters in baseball. I mean, I, and so, you know, that's food for thought and something that people should watch. And if you can help me study this, please do. I need help. Not that smart. I can tell you why the Nelson Cruz second streak happened. Uh, it started the, literally the day after I traded him in the in Tell Wars Mixed. I did a study a year or two ago, Gene, about whether or not there is such a thing as hot streaks amongst home run hitters. And the research proved pretty demonstrably that there isn't. And, and, uh, I didn't tie it particularly to high strikeout fly ball hitters. I just said, you know, do I was responding to what you hear from the broadcast booth that every streak is followed by a slump and vice versa, and it turned out not to be the case. Uh, do you think that if I had narrowed in more on this particular type of hitter that it would have seemed more obvious? I don't know. Uh, I mean, as I say, it's the sort of thing that you can observe, and that's why I'm asking all these smart people to to you know, pay attention to it and see what you think about it. Um, see if we can frame a way to measure it, because I just haven't been able to come up with a good way to to measure it for the reason that, you know, what is a streak? Um, what is a slump? Um, and and to be able to pin them down like that is really, really hard. I think almost impossible. So, you know, all I can say is that, that I can, you know, show you this player and that player and that player, and I can go back couple of decades doing this that it does happen but exactly what it consists of is really hard to say other than you know justin upton you know who hits 12 home runs in a month and then does nothing for two months i mean you can go back to daryl strawberry where i first noticed this and and uh, and i'm sure before then even um but i as i say i don't know how to measure it and i ask for help in an NFBC slow draft, you write about, I think this is last year, Brian Feldman, uh, the Tout Wars auctioneer and a really good fantasy player in his own right, had the 15th pick in a 15-team league, so he was on the on the wheel. At the first wheel, he took Max Scherzer and Felix Hernandez. Okay, fine, that's, that's a strategy, you know, you want to lock down your pitching. But then with his next two pitches at the 3-4 wheel, he took Chris Sale and, and Zach Greinke. So four out of four of his first four picks all starting pitchers, all really good starting pitchers. Now, it looked like you said he might have been trying to make a splash, get some tongues wagging, create some controversy, but he won the league. So how do you think that worked, and would you recommend the strategy, or was it just one of those things that worked even though it shouldn't have? Well, you know I've said before, um, show me a strategy, and I'll show you a first-place team and a last-place team with that strategy. Um, so as far as recommending it, you know, I don't know. But it did work, and it worked because he completely dominated the pitching categories. He got 72 out of 75 points, and he finished middle of the pack in hitting. It's sort of the opposite of the Lima plan, if you will, where you right. try to you know finish middle of the pack in pitching with, with quality and just load up on hitting. Would I do it? No. Um, I would... I'd like to think that I had the stones to pick three out of the top four pitchers, but I certainly would have picked a hitter with my fourth pick. But, you know, as I say, he did it and it worked. Would I recommend it? No, because I think it's a little too unbalanced. But it just goes to show, and here's the thing about that strategy, is in order to do that, you have to have confidence in the hitters that you're going to be taking. You have to have several hitters that you've selected and say, okay, this guy's going to be a lot better than his ADP. Um, you know, this guy is going to, he's going to, he's an eighth round hitter. He's going to be a fourth round hitter next year. If you can identify those guys, then yes, I would recommend that strategy, but it's a hard way to go. 
Might be a bit unfair to ask you to admit, remember in this much detail, but you said that he dominated pitching, which stands to reason given those picks, and that he finished middle of the pack in the hitting in total. Did he also uh, construct that mid-pack hitting total by having kind of eight points, seven points, nine points across the hitting categories? Or did he take a couple of ones and twos but really load up and say batting average and stolen bases and runs? Because the... Uh, that would that would seem. Yeah, my to be recollection is that he he was pretty much middle of the pack in everything. He might have been a little low in stolen bases, um, which is the thing to be little. If you're going to be a little low in something, better stolen bases than home runs. Because if you're low in home runs, you're going to be low in runs and RBIs too. Bryce Harper is the topic of a lot of discussion when people talk about who should be the first pick overall. There are some people who say it should be him. Of course, Mike Trout is still a popular pick. Paul Goldschmidt gets some uh, gets some support as well. In your discussion in Wise Guy Baseball, the annual, talking about Bryce Harper, you focus on this idea of subjectivity in player selection. The whole thing's supposed to be objective, though, game of skill, all that kind of thing. Talk about what you mean when you discuss the nature of subjectivity in roster building. Well, when you're splitting hairs like you are with those three guys, um, ultimately it is a subjective decision. I mean, there there's a limit to our objectivity, and that limit is that there are so many things that are unknowable. Um, we're we're not close to knowing everything, and never will be, because if only because they're human beings that we're talking about um, competing against other human beings. So at a certain point. When you say yes to this player and it means saying no to the other player, um, there's an there's an element of subjectivity in there, and you know I I only note it. I don't necessarily embrace it or say this is the way to go, but you know just I ask people to be aware of their own subjectivity. What is it exactly that's making you take that leap of faith with the one guy and not with the other guy? If that makes sense. It does. Uh, I think the important thing is, you know, know thyself is a really good uh, piece of advice for any kind of uh, fantasy baseball related activity and most uh, most activities in general, I guess. Understand why you do what you do and it can help you uh, build on strengths and, and be aware of weaknesses. Uh, you talk about projected player values when you give those values in Wise Guy Baseball, not in terms of dollar projections. You talk about terms of numbers that are bettable, and this idea of bettability pops up throughout your work. Maybe briefly explain what that means, being bettable, and how it works when you do your uh, write-ups. Well, it's basically, when I say something is bettable, it's basically shorthand for saying there's a greater than 50% chance of this, Um, you know, of a floor being established. Um, it has to do with durability. It has to do with consistency. It has to do with, uh, above all, demonstrated ability. Um, and so it, it becomes sort of a floor, you know, and it applies especially to um, to the better players um, or to the injury-prone players um, on the on the other side. It's um, it's a shorthand, and, and I think that it's. Uh, yeah, a greater than 50% chance of something happening. So in other words, you're putting a number down saying, I'd be willing to bet however much money you'd be willing to fade that he will at least make this. It's the the least amount that he's going to get. It's not an over-under type of situation. Right. I would say, you know, for example, Ben Revere is bettable at 25 stolen bases, but he's not bettable at 35 stolen bases, even though he's stolen more than that twice. Um. I think his career low since he's been in the majors is 22. Um, I think he's bettable for more than that, but not a lot more, um, if that makes sense. It does. I I just think it's an interesting concept that because we focus so much on those player values and then usually the expert who provides the player valuation will say this is the midpoint of a range and then the wise a reader says, well, how wide is the range? You know, that, that, that's a really important thing when you're talking about that. And I wonder if maybe this idea of setting a minimum is, uh, is not a bad way of going about it instead of saying this is a, the midpoint of this range because it's, it's a little more concrete while still helping you understand where the upside is. Uh, your player note on Henry Mejia, the Mets' former closer now, suggests it might be worth the while of a power player, whether a power hitter or a power pitcher, to risk using PEDs. I happen to think you're right. A lot of people disagree with us. Can you explain your position? Well, I mean, if you look at the facts, if you look at the people who've come back since they've been suspended for PED use, they haven't lost a thing. I mean, A-Rod, uh, Nelson Cruz, in their own ways, Melky Cabrera and Marlon Bird and Johnny Peralta and Edison Valquez, 
They haven't lost a thing. The current policy does not prohibit the use of PEDs. It actually allows it. Um, so you take your 50-game suspension, even a 100-game suspension. In the case of Mejia, if the lunkhead had only the brains to realize that the good has already been done, he didn't need to get busted a third time, um, he would have taken his 100-game suspension, come back, and he could have been a closer at the end of next year. I mean, he has that kind of talent uh, on the field. So I think it's still, the current policy is not going to work because marginal players are still are going to look at the profit potential and say, wait a minute, I can be a quadruple-A player or I can be a star and make a lot of money in Major League Baseball by taking these PEDs. And, you know, a certain type of player is going to, is going to do that. And you argue probably should do that, given the financial incentives to uh, to that accrue to somebody who, as you said, moves up from being a borderline major leaguer to not even necessarily a star, just a guy who plays every day. I mean, what, what's he going to make if he's a veteran? You're talking about seven or eight million dollars a year versus riding a bus between you know Schenectady and, and Rochester. The 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 reward outweighs the risk, especially if you do it intelligently, which I think is a big problem for some players. Is that they don't understand there are ways of doing this that that help you avoid being caught unless you get turned in by the guy. Yeah, I mean, and what's the penalty? The shame of being of being busted it doesn't seem to be very shameful. I mean, they come and they say, "Gee, golly, I made a mistake," and now let's look forward and put that behind us and. You know, the only real cost could be if their teammates ostracize them. But, you know, in spite of the fact that I've heard a lot of players come out strongly against PEDs, none of the users have been ostracized in the clubhouse, to, you know, as far as I know. So there really is no cost other than those games that you missed, which you can miss, you know, with a, with a hamstring injury. Yeah, and you wonder about the lack of ostracization by the uh, existing players, and you ask yourself, I wonder why that is. If they're all non-users, then uh, then why are they not more angry with this guy for for cheating? And of course, my own suspicion is that there's a, a not necessarily a majority, but there's a substantial number of players who are also using. They're just being smarter about it and not getting caught. Everybody forgets Alex Rodriguez served this time. Uh, all these other guys served their time, and and very few of them actually got caught in the drug testing regime. It's always a detective story involving uh, guys stupidly sending personal checks, or or the uh, or the low life who's the supplier turning state's evidence because he doesn't want to go to jail, those kind of things. To me, you either, have to go, you, you either have to allow them to take everything or you have to ban them for life for first-time use. I mean, I don't think there's any other compromise solution there. It has to be one or the other. More with Gene McCaffrey in just a minute. This is Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ reminding you that our first-pitch forums are back for 2016. Join Ron Chandler, Jock Thompson, Todd Zola, myself, and more of your favorite Baseball HQ radio voices in these three-hour interactive seminars. These entertaining and highly engaging events are designed to give you the information you need to win your fantasy league in 2016. The Baseball Forecaster and BaseballHQ.com are both tremendous resources, but sometimes the best advice is live advice. So join us for a First Pitch Forum event in your area. We even have a special offer for Baseball HQ radio listeners. When registering for a first pitch event at BaseballHQ.com, just use the coupon code RADIO2016 to save $5 on your admission. That's 5 bucks off your registration just for listening to Baseball HQ radio. We're looking forward to seeing you live and in person at our first pitch of forum events this February and March. This year's tour includes some traditional stops and some new locations. Come out and join us. It's the last weekend of First Pitch Forums on Friday night in the Baltimore, Washington area at the USA Today headquarters in McLean, Virginia. On Saturday, two events, one in the New York, New Jersey area, in Saddlebrook, New Jersey, and in Los Angeles at the Embassy Suites Hotel in Arcadia, and closing the tour Sunday night in Boston at the Courtyard Boston in Natick. All the details can be found at BaseballHQ.com on the right side of the page. Look for the First Pitch Forums logo right under HQ Radio. Admission is available at the door, and make sure you tell them you heard about First Pitch Forums at Baseball HQ Radio.
Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, our Tuesday Tout Edition. I'm Patrick Davitt, and of course, we're joined by the wise guy of fantasy baseball. It's Gene McCaffrey. And Gene, in a player note in the Baseball Annual Wise Guy Baseball, you have an aside about the percent-owned factor in DFS. This is something that gets played up a lot and certainly was a factor in the uh, scandal that erupted over that one guy who apparently was looking at percent-owned factors that weren't available to the rank and file. A lot of people put great stock in this idea that percentage owned matters a lot, and you say it doesn't matter at all. What are they missing? Well, it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It all it matters if there are two players with the same point expectation for that day. Then sure, take the less popular guy. Um, but it's all about points. Uh, for for example, if you have a player who's he's expected his point expectation is top, and he's eighty percent owned. If you don't own him you're going to probably lose to 80% of the people. Take him. Take the points and beat them somewhere else. No one's going to have your exact team anyway. At the same time, if your 80% player does not deliver, you can still win because you just got, again, you have to beat them somewhere else. I mean, this is something that uh, CDM and fan tracks and challenge game players have known for years is that it's not that important. It's a minor factor. It's sort of like position scarcity. It's a minor factor. It matters when two players have the same point expectation. But other than that, you're in there to get the points. Forget about the popularity until that issue has been decided. Let's talk about some particular players from the Wise Guy Baseball Annual, which is also available on the website. Starting with Cody Allen, I liked your comment. You said he's not a glamorous number one closer, but when the closer run starts, he should be there with the Britons and the Robertsons. You're a little bit high on Cody Allen. Well, yeah, I think he's a good pitcher, and I, and I think that basically, you know, as I said before, if Brett, if Boxberger can get 41 saves having a bad year, um, a good pitcher can get 45 saves having uh, having a good year. Um, the team is reasonably good. Um, they're also a team that's a pretty good team that has great starting pitching. Score should be low. Um, that increases save opportunities. Um, if you have to, you know, it's hard to pick out saves as it is to pick out wins. But there are certain little percentage factors that uh, that apply, and a low-scoring team um, that's a good team is a great place to go fishing for saves when the run starts. You know, there's no need to re- to reach for him because nobody considers him to be really elite. But but he's good, and his circumstances are good. So yeah, join right in. Elvis Andrus, the shortstop in Texas, you say, I believe I will lay back and pluck me a peach. <laughs> What does that mean? Yeah, well, that's not going to happen. I was listening to the labor auction the other night, and he went for the $18 that I had him for, so I guess he's not um, not a secret. I think he's kind of fall, a false consistency guy, um, and I could be wrong about this because I've been wrong for two or three years about it, So, but I just think that he makes good contact. He hits line drives and ground balls. He can hit 300, and if he hits 300, he's going to steal 35, 40 bases. With all the excitement about the young shortstops, which is great, and I, and I believe in the young shortstops for the most part, but a guy like Elvis Andrews, I thought, might fall back, and apparently that's not going to happen. So. Nolan Arenado went in the first round, fairly high in the first round at the labor mixed uh, snake draft, and uh, you say he won't cost $40, but he should. You're that high on Nolan Arenado this year? Yeah, I think he's going to have a monster year either this year or next year. Um, you know, he's he's that good a hitter, and of course he's in Coors Field. So yeah, I mean, I think he's going to have a year when he hits three twenty five and hits forty eight home runs. Everyone's sort of expecting his home runs to 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 drop off this year, and that's not unreasonable to expect that. But I think that either this year or next year he's going to get better. He's a great ball player. Talking about uh, Cleveland pitchers, Trevor Bauer stinks. He's a bum. You say? Why is that? <laughs> well, I'm not saying that he's going to be a bum. I'm saying that he has been a bum. Um, I still think he could be a great pitcher, but he needs to... I'm not going to pay for him to be a great pitcher until he is one, and his problem is that he can't locate his fastball. Um, and until he does that, I'm not going to pay... I'm not going to pay as if he's going to do that, as if he's at that level. It could happen. Um, he's worth taking as a flyer, uh, but he's not worth any kind of serious investment. You're pretty sure you're not going to get a Xander Bogarts in most drafts because people like him more than you do, but you like him uh, quite fine. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, everybody's panicking about the shortstops, and uh, I kind of understand that, and Bogarts is good. I, You know, last year I said he was going to hit, 
Um, I didn't expect him to do quite as well as he had, but I, I, I think he's got upside in, in four of the five categories. His batting average will come down, but, but regression to the mean with Bogarts should increase for the other four categories, which makes him a legitimate third, fourth-round draft pick. Um, but everybody's so high on the shortstops, and everybody's so desperate to get one that, uh, that you're going to have to pay full price for it. You say Byron Buxton doesn't belong in the major leagues. No. Well, based on, unless he improved over the winter, he doesn't. I mean, I know he's got the pedigree, and he could come fast. I, I don't deny that. But to me, the player he reminded me most of was another former one, former number one draft pick, now named Melvin Upton. And that kind of scares me. Trevor Cahill, you have an interesting note. He's in Chicago now, and you say, as a bullpen reliever, long man, swing man type guy, he's going to get wins that way, and that's going to be the future of the wins category. I, I wonder, do you think the future is now, uh, and do you think that Trevor Cahill makes a good end game reliever for that reason? Well, I've been preaching this for about 20 years, and it hasn't happened yet, so my comment was sort of semi-ironic. It should happen. Um, Joe Madden was, um, when it came to the back end of the rotation, he was very anxious to pull his pitchers in the fifth and sixth inning. Somebody's going to pitch those innings. It makes sense that a multiple inning reliever is going to come from the ranks of the starters since they don't have to worry about him being able to handle multiple innings. Um, Cahill was much more effective from the pen. He looked like a completely different pitcher to me. Um, so that's where that, that kind of player is going to come from. Um, the guy who's who's pitching in those middle innings, especially on a good hitting team like the Cubs, um, that's where you know one of these years somebody's going to win thirteen, fourteen games doing that. Um, it hasn't happened yet, um, so you know maybe don't take me too seriously. But it to me it should happen, so I keep expecting it. You said of Jacob Degrom, and this is an eyebrow raiser. He's just as good as Kershaw or Scherzer or anyone. Really? Yeah. He puts the ball where he wants to. He gets guys to swing and miss. I mean, it looks to me like he basically does whatever he wants, and and the batters turn around and walk back to the dugout. Um, the innings restrictions are off him this year. You know, I mean, as far as taking him, you know, he's just as he's just as good a pick as any of them. Yeah, I, I've already got him. I mean, I've done two drafts this year um, for money, and he's on both my teams. So, you know. At least I'm putting my money where my mouth is. We'll see at the end of the year. But, you know, I mean, if I had to bet, and the same thing is true of Harvey, too. I mean, I, to me, they're, they're two peas in a pod, and they're both great pitchers, not good, great pitchers. And, sure, you know, take them. Harvey, in particular, went down, I think, in the fourth or fifth round at the labor mix draft. DeGrom was right up there with the Chris Sales and that, so I, I think no secret there. Uh, you you have a uh, this idea about uh, mediocre pitchers, that is, pitchers who don't have particularly overpowering stuff, but they succeed because they're successful by pitching up in the strike zone. One example, Chris Young of the Royals. Another, Marco Estrada, who had a really good year for Toronto last year, surprising, I'm sure, everybody who saw it. Explain what that idea is about being up in the zone successfully and how you think it works. Well, I, it comes from looking at the heat maps um, that are on uh, various websites. And in looking at the heat maps, there are no hitters, I, I wouldn't say zero, but there are very few hitters who can hit the ball up in the strike zone. If you look at the heat maps, it'll bear it out. I think the only one that I found is Jorge Soler, and even he's not that good at it. Um, so the batters can't hit this pitch. Even when it's junky, even when the velocity is not there, I mean, Chris Young is an extreme example. But, you know, look at the guy. He's, what, 36, 37 years old. He's still pitching in the major leagues. A lot of hot prospects are long gone. Um, it works. Um, I don't know why it is. I think it might be a reaction to the fact that, you know, for decades, pitchers were told, keep the ball down, keep the ball down. And as a sort of evolution, all hitters are low ball hitters now. And if you look at their heat maps, they're all like that. They all like the ball uh, middle in and down. Um, it's unbelievable. So a pitcher who breaks that mold, that's why he's successful. And it's also, by the way, in the case of Estrada, who had an extremely low Babbitt last year, um, that's the reason for it. Um, 
of course, he's going to regress a little bit this year, but he's still going to have a low BABIP, and he's still undervalued, in my opinion. A lot of experts are recommending against rostering Felix Hernandez in his customary spot uh, high in the draft. A lot of experts say that uh, you should draft him. A lot of th- say that you, you shouldn't draft him. You say you're going to let him be on someone else's roster. What is your take on Felix Hernandez? Well, his fastball is nowhere near as effective as it used to be. It ranked near the bottom in fastball effectiveness last year. And Felix knows this, and he's throwing his fastball a lot less than he used to in the past. I think he's down to 43% compared to over 60% a few years ago. Um, the transition to finesse plus, finesse plus pitcher has begun, and as Verlander and Sabathia can tell him, that can be a painful process. Now, he gets Safeco to, to minimize the damage, but... You know, in a league where I'm not getting 14 out of 15 players anyway, there is no way in the world that I am taking Felix over Harvey or DeGrom or Sale or Bumgarner or all those pitchers who I have better reason to believe are going to continue to be elite. Gene, uh, experts and analysts are often reluctant to credit a player with his playoff performance as a leading indicator because of the small sample size, the different circumstances, all that kind of thing. But Mike Moustakas had a really good playoff run, and it has made you a little more positive than we might expect about him. You set his bettability uh, value at $21. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really good price. I think he's going to out-earn that. His playoff run was in 2014, where he demonstrated a new approach. He's not the only one. Chris Carpenter was another one who, in 2014, you could see that he had changed his approach. He was loading up and saying, okay, I'm going to look for a pitch here and try to hit it out of the ballpark. And he did it, and so did Moustakas. Now, I'm not saying it proves anything, but I am saying it's a factor. It shows, at the very least, that these guys can hit the ball out of the ballpark against good pitchers playoff pitchers when the when the stakes are high i mean those are good things they're not anything to bet the house on but when they're combined with a new approach which was the case with both hitters um it's a factor yes should not be ignored steven souza swings and misses a lot makes a lot of weak contact and you like him anyway how come well we talked about it before he's got a broad base he can he can grow in home runs he can grow in stolen bases he can grow in batting average I think the odds are very good that one of those things will take off, and it's possible that two of those things will take off. So again, um, don't invest heavily in him, but when the time comes to take your fifth outfielder, which is where he's going, he's one of the better bets. And finally, Adam Wainwright of St. Louis has had a couple of serious injuries, and he's no spring chicken, and yet you think he has number two potential for a fantasy rotation, and you expect to get him at a number three. Why do the belief in Adam Wainwright? First of all, I mean, people talk about his injuries, but he actually came back. So there's no doubt about that. He's in great shape. Um, he hasn't relied on velocity for many years, um, so that's not an issue as far as, far as the age is concerned. What makes him a great pitcher is that he can throw his terrific curveball for a strike basically any time he wants to, and I don't see any reason to expect that he won't do that. Um, he's going to pile up the innings, um, which makes him a beautiful number three guy, you know, to really support, you know, your top two guys, and it gives you a really strong base in pitching. Yeah, if they're going to let me have him for $18, I am certainly going to take it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with the wise guy, Gene McCaffrey. And, Gene, in this preseason, what I'm doing is I'm asking all the experts to come up with what I've called sleepers and bleepers. Uh, sleepers being guys, of course, we know what sleepers are. Bleepers, uh, as a reminder to our listeners, are the players that you don't want in any way to have on your roster. So with that in mind, let's look at the sleepers first. In the American League, who's a hitter you think could be a real bargain? I don't know about bargains, but I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in Lindor and uh, Cattell Marte um, in their places. I think that they've demonstrated that they are for real. I think there's a fair amount of doubt about them. But from what I've seen and from how they did what they did, I think that it, in their own ways, they're going to be worth what people pay for in the National League, a hitter that uh, could be a, a bargain. Different tack, Curtis Granderson. Despite his age, he still has big power. He's made tremendous improvement in the pitches that he doesn't swing at, which is going to set him up for the pitches that he can hit out of the ballpark. I would not be at all surprised if he has a better year this year than last year. Out to the mound for a sleeper pitcher in the American League. Kevin Gosman on the, on the Orioles. I, I really like a pitcher who... Um, 
who demonstrated effectiveness, consistent effectiveness in Camden Yards. I mean, he's not quite there yet, but he's very close, and I think he's worth a little leap of faith. And in the National League, who's a pitcher that you like as a sleeper? Well, since I called Patrick Corbin the Dallas Keuchel of 2016, I'm going to have to stick with that. Um, I like the fact that his strikeouts are up over eight. His control is under he has 1.8. Last year, he kind of came back at the end. He's a little bit still. I mean, I've heard people talk about him. He's a little under the radar, but I think he's got to, you know, if I call him the Dallas Keuchel, i got to put my money where my mouth is and make him my pick. So Gene McCaffrey, sleepers, uh, Francisco Lindor and Kettle Marte for the American League hitters, Curtis Granderson in the National League, the pitchers Kevin Gosman of the Orioles and Patrick Corbin in the National League. Let's move on to the bleepers, Gene. Who's an American League hitter you want no part of? Well, not that I want no part of him, but we talked about Chris Davis, and I expect him to have one of his lesser seasons. I think he's going way too high. Um, I'd just as soon have Albert Pujols, you know, 75 players later. In the National League, a hitter uh, that falls into that same category. Hayward on the Cubs. He's not a very good hitter. He doesn't hit the ball hard. He hits the ball on the ground. He jams himself continually. He's just not that good. And he's treated as if he's uh, a roto stud, um, which he's not. So I'm going to let somebody else overpay for him. Out to the mound for an American League bleeper pitcher. Well, we talked about Felix. I don't think he's going to be terrible, but relative to his draft position, I don't think he's going to earn out. Another one I would add is Sonny Gray, who melted down in September, and that makes me very nervous. And whether I'm prudent or paranoid, I see a scalpel in his future. And finally, a National League pitcher who qualifies as a bleeper for you? John Lackey. Uh, Again, in Wise Guy Baseball 2016, I called him the Doug Fister of 2016 so again, I'll, I'll uh, take my money out of my mouth and let somebody else deal with the uh, deal with the bad luck that's going to follow the good luck of last year. Gene McCaffrey's bleepers, Chris Davis of the Orioles from an American League hitter, Jason Hayward of the Cubs from the National League. American League pitcher, watch out for Felix Hernandez. Gene recommends also Sonny Gray. And a National League pitcher, John Lackey, moved over to the Cubs. Uh, and uh, is go- probably going to be overdrafted because uh, everybody's talking about the Cubs, and John Lackey's been a consistent guy over the years. A, a lot to worry about there, as Gene suggests. Uh, Gene, before I let you go, in Tout Wars this year, you have moved from the National League only, I believe you were in last year, back to the Mixed League. What was the thinking behind that move? Well, it's a little easier to deal with the injuries. I can't stand looking at the pathetic fab availability in the in the NL-only leagues. I like the idea of being able to choose between two guys who can actually do something rather than just fill roster slots. I also like the irrationality of mixed league auctions, and uh, I think that maybe if people try to think rationally about it, I can possibly exploit that and beat them by an irrational approach, which is not irrational since there is no rationality in the auction process in mixed leagues. Do you think that it's time that uh, people who are in single-league format, rotisserie leagues in particular, start looking at the possibility of changing the player mix to add a pitcher and subtract a hitter in some way because of the, the way that modern baseball rosters are made up? The 25-man used to be you know, roughly 13 hitters, 12 pitchers. Now it's sometimes more like 11 hitters and 14 pitchers because they want to play matchups. They, they rely more heavily on their starting guys hitting and so forth. We still insist on rostering five outfielders and uh, and all these extra middle infielders, and they're just not there in real big league rosters anymore. Can we start a groundswell or something to say let's uh, let's shift the roster balance in rotisserie single league to reflect the realities of baseball in in at the major league level? Yeah, I think that's a good. I hadn't thought of that. Um, I, I think it's probably a good idea. I mean, I have to think it through and think the implications through, but it seems to make sense on the surface. Yes. All right, Gene, uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your wise guyness. Well, wiseguybaseball.com, it's a subscription. It's 19.95 a month. I'm going to make it worth your while or die trying. Um, and we'll see when the DFS season starts. Um, um, just how good my new algorithm is, which I'm really excited about. And if somebody wants to get the printed version or a uh, PDF version or something of Wise Guy Baseball the annual, is that available? Well, um, I'll mail you a hard copy of Wise Guy Baseball 2016 if you, if you sign up with a subscription. That's that's the only way I've been doing it this year. Um, it is up. It is posted on the website. But if you if you're the kind of guy who likes to take your hard copy into the bathroom with you, <laughs> by all means, 
I'll uh, I'll send you a hard copy. Gene, thanks a million for doing this. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you about fantasy baseball, and we'll see you in New York City for Tow Wars. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, as always, Patrick. Gene McCaffrey is the uh, wise guy of fantasy baseball. You heard about wiseguybaseball.com and the Wise Guy Baseball Annual. You get a free one if you sign up for the website. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 7 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest today on our Tuesday Tout Edition. It was Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, and it's always such a pleasure to talk with Gene about fantasy baseball and player projections. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember, you can stay in touch with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. I also have a personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Feel free to join me there. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. You'll be the first to know whenever a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with a news and commentary edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.